the last time that I introduced Brad this week, I read through his bio, and you may not have been in that particular session. Um, Brad is a graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching and also of Heritage Christian University. He's currently pursuing an MDiv there at Heritage. Um, preaches in Moulton, Alabama. Has done local work in Alabama and uh, Kentucky since he's been out of school. Um, he is a dear friend of mine. Um, I don't necessarily like it when he talks about me being a step ahead of him because that means that I'm older than he is. But um, it's interesting how life brings you together with people that you didn't know it would bring you together with. And I think ministry does that for a lot of folks. The church does that for a lot of folks. But for Brad and I, uh, we went to the same school, uh, didn't really know one another, and then started talking. We had him out to, to San Marcos to speak and just developed immediately a friendship that I treasure to this day. Um, we were uh, you know, born in the same area of the country. Uh, we're both Ole Miss fans. Um, you know, We love books. There's a lot of things in common with our lives. And I wonder what it, where I would be and what I would be if our paths hadn't crossed. And so um, I'm thankful that he's here. I've been excited. He's been hanging out at the house all week. So we've been, uh, wouldn't stand up, not as late as we used to stay up when he would come come by, but we've been up and talking and uh, reminiscing and planning. And so I just love him very much. And I hope that you'll pay attention to him now as he speaks to us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Glad uh, to spend some time with Wayne and everyone else and to be a part of the school uh, and uh, what you're doing here and um, <clears throat> to be talking about the Psalms. I mean, uh, I was saying at lunch that it feels good to come here and see people I know that are smarter than I am, that they're more seasoned than I am, they have more experience than I am, and they say some things and I go, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I did understand that. And uh, so it, it's been a really good time for me to really sit and contemplate. Our assignment for this hour is Psalm 102, which is a longer psalm, so we'll have to move quite swiftly. But there's a text in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 which may have some origins in the psalms. Psalm 55 and verse 17 or 20, I forget it, or 22, where it says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, many times what we miss is the verse that goes before that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your anxieties upon Him. There is a sense of humility where we have to admit that we can't fix things. Right? That things aren't going our way. Now, when we study 1 Peter 5, 7, there's not really a lot in it that you shake your head and go, I don't really know what he means. Right? Or, you know, we can get into the, the, the deep theological recesses of Scripture. But you know, sometimes it's incredibly hard to do. And <clears throat> this psalm deals with how we handle some of those moments when life knocks the breath out of you. Or when you've put yourself in a situation and you're trying to process all of the emotions that go along with it. So what I want us to do in the course of this time, is consider a few preliminary things. Now, uh, Friday I spent probably a little too much time on some of the preliminary things, so we're not going to go as in-depth, especially since the psalm is so much longer. But those preliminary ideas that will help us <clears throat> to understand what's going on, then look at the psalm itself, and then look at some practical things that we can take away from it. 
So first of all, let's begin with some preliminary considerations with the psalm. The first of which is its location. Okay, as we said Friday, scholarship has really started to pay a lot more attention to the composition or the order of the psalms. Not treating them as a hodgepodge, but treating them maybe as this they've been sewn together. Okay? When you look at the seams of the books as we have them, like book one, you look at the end of Psalm 41, or you look at the end of Psalm 72 or Psalm 89, there's a repetitive phrase that gives us the notion that these things have been organized very carefully. Okay. Now, one of the proposed theories that has been put forth by Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary in his recent publication, two-volume publication on the Psalms, is that the five books can be thought of this way. Now, obviously, they're not exclusive. There, are, there will be exceptions, but the five books can be thought of this way. The first is the persecution of the historical David. Okay? The second is the reign of the historical David. The third is the end of the historical David's house. When you read Psalm 89 and you feel its sense of desperation of trying to reconcile 2 Samuel 7 with some catastrophic event, and in my mind, the only catastrophic event that can be is the captivity. Okay? And so they're, they're wrestling with those notions. And then you get to Psalm 90, and as we said Friday, you, you notice it opens with the prayer of Moses. And that's led Hamilton to believe that this is Moses interceding for the Davidic covenant. And then as we move into <clears throat> book number four, or book number five, I should say, we have the conquest of the future Davidic kings, books or Psalms 107 to 150. Okay. Now, if Hamilton is right, and I'm not here to argue that he is right, because, to be honest with you, I haven't had the time to just dive into and look at every single notion of his theory. But if he is right, and this is in section 4, after the fall of the historical David's house, then it's not really surprising that we run upon a psalm that is less than jubilant. Okay? if there is a time of weeping that has gone on. And I think there are some things within the psalm that we'll see in just a minute that, that may help us to kind of understand and interpret them a little bit better. So when we think about the theme of this song, uh, of this particular psalm, one of the things we need to, to see is that this psalm, like many of them, it starts as if you're in a black hole in a dark room where no light is available. But by the time you get to the end, it is like the glory of God has filled that room to where that it's almost blinding as he sees and he contemplates the nature of God. Now, as we think about how to categorize this psalm, and that goes back to, if I remember right, somewhere around the 6th century, uh, people began to really categorize these psalms into more official terms where you get your psalms of lament, imprecatory, all those types of things. This psalm is actually, in that classification, was characterized as a penitential psalm. And it may be right. I I don't know. I I think there's a case to be made for it. It's certainly also able to be categorized as a psalm of lament. I will leave it to you to decide which one you think that is. But that helps us and it's important to us in understanding how to interpret the psalm itself. Now, Walter Brueggemann, many years ago, wrote a classic essay that we mentioned last week, that he categorized the psalms into three areas, three different types of psalms. There were psalms of orientation. That is, when you read them, there's no sense of 
I don't want to put that. There's no sense of tragedy. It seems to be a normal life. And it seems as if everything is kind of great in your covenant relationship with God. Everything is right in the circumstances around you. So it's kind of like an ideal circumstance. But then the second category he describes are psalms of disorientation in which he describes those psalms as the one where the present reality of orientation seems to have collapsed on top of you. And how do we handle the situations of life when it seems as if those things have collapsed on top of us? And the third area are psalms of reorientation. As he describes that you let go of the past and what was and you become excited about the reality of what God is going to bring out of the difficulty. Okay? So this psalm is certainly a psalm of disorientation. There's no way to read the opening lines of this psalm and say this guy, oh, this is a normal day for him. Everything looks great and it's blossoming and things are going well. So, as we think about this psalm and here's one of the challenges that come along with it and one that has puzzled me for many years. And I'm not certain I have the answer yet, but I feel like I'm a little bit closer. So, for an example, look with me. When you read in the first 11 verses, you read it as if an individual is speaking, right? So, in verse 3, For my days pass away, my bones, my heart, I forget because of my loud groaning, my bones, I am like, I am like, I lie, I. Okay? The individual. But then you come down to verse 12, and this is where, when I'm reading it, it always just kind of throws me, and it says, But you, Lord, are enthroned forever, and you are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. Why have we all of a sudden just shifted gears? He's talking about himself. And now we, we launch into this thing about Zion. Now, I can tell you what liberal scholars are going to say right here, right? It's unacceptable. They're going to say, we got two different psalms that some editor took and fused together. I think there are plenty of better ways of answering this. Okay? So when we're dealing with this, the location of the psalm may help us here. Okay? So this could be a psalm, and some people throughout church history have argued that this might be categorized as an exile psalm. And so, one of the things it may be, the individual is writing of his personal experience in captivity and is then shifting his discussion, his thoughts away from himself to the fact of God's restoration of the people from captivity. And thus it would make sense to shift from the difficulty of the punishment of captivity into the glorious future of God recreating Jerusalem or reestablishing Jerusalem as it has been abandoned and destroyed. That may be the answer. I don't know. I certainly think it's very possible. Now, those are some preliminary things. Let's look in at the psalm itself now. We're going to begin with superscriptions. Okay? This superscription, again, as we said recently, and as Wayne mentioned even this morning, um, they are extremely valuable and they have proven themselves to be very accurate. There are other debates that exist around them, but this one is certainly dead on. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now, when I read that phrase, my mind immediately goes to one text in the Old Testament 
when he is afflicted and he pours out his complaint before the Lord. My mind automatically goes to 1 Samuel 1 and verse 15. You remember when Eli thought that Hannah was drunk. What did she say? No, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit because I have been pouring out my soul before God. And you know, I think we've all been in moments that life brought us to a point to where it's almost like we had been filled up in a water, like a water balloon so much and finally something popped and it just gushed. You just couldn't take it anymore. You went in a room and you sat down by yourself and everything just came out. I don't wish that experience on anybody that life would get them to that point. I really don't. But I can tell you this from having a couple of those experiences within the last seven years. I would not take anything for those moments. Because I learned things about who God was and is in the moments when I realized I had absolutely nothing to offer. And that's what this psalm, this psalmist is doing. He's going to pour out his complaint before the Lord, lay it bare and say, this is it. You can feel his sense of frustration. You can feel his sense of desperation. And so as we move into the psalm, I think I'm going to break it into three parts. Okay, uh, The first 11 verses are the psalmist's complaint. Uh, verses 12 through 24 will deal with his concern for Jerusalem. And then in 25 to 28, it will end in a grand crescendo of what God is going to do concerning the situation. So first of all, let's think about his complaint. Notice the way he begins. I'm reading the ESV, so it may be a little different than whatever translation you're carrying. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. You ever been praying and you just felt like it's the words are coming out of my mouth and they're hitting this ceiling and just ricocheting back down? They're not going anywhere. Like, isn't it Lamentations that describes there's like a cloud that nothing can pass through to the heavens? We're just blocked in. We don't know what to do about it. The psalmist seems to kind of have that experience where he's saying, God, I need you, I need you to pay attention to me. Don't hide your face from me. And especially when you look at and you trace that phrase, hide your face, throughout Scripture, many times that's the idea. When God turns His face away from, it may be indicating sometimes the face of fellowship. Which, based on some things He's going to say later, He may believe that this is something. If it's the historical context is true, that may be true as well. But every time I sing the song <clears throat> where no one stands alone, and we're talking about we feel that loneliness and I cry, Oh Lord, don't hide your face from me. Because if the light of His countenance doesn't shine upon us, there is no blessing. Number 6, 24-26. 
So he feels that, that sense of frustration. And then he begins to describe his situation to God. And these come also in three sections. First of all, he kind of describes his own personal situation. And then he moves and talks about his relationship with others. And then he moves and he talks about his relationship with God. So he says this, For my days pass away like smoke. You see how smoke can come up and then it moves and it disintegrates. It's very quickly. Okay? It feels like the days just keep rolling by, but they're, they're empty and futile. My bones burn like a furnace. Describing perhaps his skeletal structure, as Robert Alter in his comments on this, describes it as the internal torment of whatever the situation is. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. You lose a sense of motivation. You lose a sense of feeling. Just as the sun can come down upon grass and slowly over time scorch it, this person's heart, all the circumstances have slowly been beating down on it and it's as if it's just scorched. And what are you going to do in that moment? Then he says, I forget to eat my bread. By the way, it it doesn't take a clinical professional to read that what this man is describing is something we understand very well as depression. And forgetting to eat my bread is a common thing that happens in depression. You lose all sense of orientation with your world. Time seems to stand still. He says, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Perhaps a reference to weight loss connected to uh, the lack of eating. Then he turns to his relationship with others, or I should say the absence of his relationship with others. And he says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of waste places. I lie awake and I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Notice you have these animals being unclean animals. There are also animals that are spoken of in the prophets like Isaiah 34 and Zephaniah 3 of inhabiting desolate places. I just feel so incredibly alone. Loneliness, listen, loneliness is not the absence of other people's presence. Mm You can be a room surrounded by people and be the loneliest person in the world. Mm -hmm. Those who use my name, they use it as a curse. I'm the object of their joking. Then he moves it to his relationship with God. I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink. You can almost see it. The tears are flowing as they're drinking and the drink starts to have this taste of salt in it from their tears. And he says to God, because of your indignation and your anger, you've taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow, like the old sundial. The, the, The sun is setting on my life and I'm withering away like grass. But you see, the psalmist is wondering, is this happening because God is displeased with me? 
if it's in the context of captivity, it certainly may have been. But one thing I know to be true is that when we suffer, we are very tempted to think, is this happening because I'm not who I was supposed to be? One of the things we'll get to in in a little bit later on the practical side is our emotions will lie to us. It will cause us to question things that we know for certain. So you can see his complaint. He's got one. Then we move to his concern for Jerusalem or for Zion. And you see this note of contrast. But you, this is my desperate situation, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. He's taking his complaint to the one who is permanent and can always and will always keep his promises. He says, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. He is seeking God to act. And if this is dealing with captivity, it's dealing with the restoration of Jerusalem. And he says, To have pity on Zion, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. When you restore Jerusalem, when you make it back to what it's supposed to be, people will stand in awe. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So that when people from generations, even up to this very moment right now, when we look at what God does for His people in desperation, that we could look at it and look at God in a sense of awe. That even in the midst of the ashes, they can bring forth, God can bring forth the most profound of things. He says that the Lord looked down from His holy height from heaven. The Lord looked to the earth. He heard the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise. When peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. So there's coming a time God is going to restore them and everybody's going to stand back in awe. That's why when they returned from captivity, that became the second exodus, right? You remember Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 16, he said the days are coming when they're no longer going to say as the Lord brought us up from the land of Egypt, but the Lord who brought us up from the north country. Their second exodus. And generations are going to come and see how many generations and how many civilizations throughout the history of the world have ever been absolutely decimated and then came back. Matter of fact, when you get a little bit later into Malachi, isn't that his point when they question God's love? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. How do you know that? How have you loved us? Because you're not in captivity anymore. So his concern is for Zion. Then he moves into the grand statement of faith. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will wear out like a garment and you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Notice he's contrasting. This is obviously, if you were here last night, this text is one of the ones quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, describing the supremacy of Jesus. But think about how he looks at the heavens. When he looks at the heavens, he's like, look, God changing the heavens, that's no different than me taking my jacket off and putting it on. Mm -hmm. Like, it's that simple for him. (laughs) It's that simple for him. Mm And so in the midst of difficulties, this is where His radiant faith... And sometimes we just need to talk through things. We just need to reason through things. Because that's what He's doing. He sees a situation in desperation, and then He thinks, oh, but, but God can restore Zion. Oh yeah, God can do anything. And then He says... In verse 28, The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. That is because God is eternal and unchanging. His people will always have stability in a world of difficulty. That's the point. Now look, that's a view of the psalm from about 10,000 feet. (laughs) It, It... I don't like doing that, but I don't also have four sessions with you to talk to you about all of the details of all of the little things here and there. So I want us to close by looking at four principles from this text, four practical things that will help us, and they're all kind of building on each other. The first of which is that God cares for the afflicted. God has always and will always have a place in His heart for those who cannot care for themselves. All you have to do, look, listen. He always cared for the poor. Exodus 22, Amos 2, James 2. He always cared for the sojourner, Exodus 22, 21. For orphans, Exodus 22, Hosea 14, James 1. For widows in Exodus 22, in the book of Ruth, in James 1 again. For the discouraged in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, and many other places. What about being moved for compassion? My favorite interaction Jesus ever had with any individual was His interaction with the leper in Mark 1. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I love it is because if you pay attention to what the leper says... He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. His doubt of Jesus is not a doubt of His power to heal him. Mm -hmm. He says it. You can make me clean. What is his doubt? It's the same doubt that rests in so many of us. Do you love me enough to help me? Mm -hmm. If you are willing, if you exercise your will, do you see me? Do you understand my struggle? Do you care about me enough to do something? Well, I know you can do it. But do you want to? And I don't know exactly how that scene played out, but in my head, you can almost just see Jesus. The man is kneeling at Him. You can almost see Him just kind of get down on His level, lift His head up and say, look me in the eyes. I'm willing. And it's gone. It's gone. God cares for the afflicted. He always has. He always will. And even those who are afflicted in sin, 
Do you know there's only one text in the New Testament where Jesus actually explains his heart? And this is not original with me. It's only one. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And there is a book that carries that name by Dane Ortland that every person with a pulse should read. Because he will show you Jesus in ways you've never thought of. That his heart, far from, oh, I don't want to be a burden to someone, or I don't want to be a burden to God. <laughs> Are you kidding? This is what Jesus lives for. For His heart to come out to you and to me in our struggles and to say, here I am. Well, Jesus, you know, I know you're busy. You know, you're running the world. I don't want to bother you. You're not bothering me. For this cause I was born and for this cause I came into the world. Number two. Not only is depression a real thing, Mm -hmm. but so is spiritual depression. Mm -hmm. It's real. 1 Kings 19, in my mind, paints it as plain. It's as plain as it can be. When Elijah sits down there and he begs God, he says, just let me die. Now look, is Elijah thinking straightly, uh, correctly? No. Is he coming down off of a mountaintop experience literally? Yes. But I'm going to tell you something. There are people when they read this text, matter of fact, I have a professor that when he reads that text, his takeaway is what God says to him is, Elijah, get over yourself. And I say, that's not right. That's not the right reading. Mm -hmm. It's not what God does at all. Mm -hmm. You know the first thing he does? Go to sleep. Here's some food. Go back to sleep. Here's some more food. Go back to sleep. And out of all those wonderful manifestations, those powerful manifestations of God's presence where He's tearing a mountain and He's doing all these things, God is not in those things that crush. He's in that small, still voice speaking gently. But you get into that spiritual depression where why bother? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Bible study is a chore. As we said earlier, my prayers feel like they hit the ceiling and bounce right back down. What is? What am I going to do? I remember when I first started preaching and the first time this ever happened to me, I didn't know what in the world was going on. I had no clue. I'd never known a time when I wasn't driven or passionate and had the energy, the emotion, the feeling to go and do what I wanted to do. Now all of a sudden I didn't really care. What was wrong with me? Well, at the time I didn't know it, but nothing. Mm -hmm. I was experiencing normal emotions. Mm -hmm. So what do we do in moments of spiritual depression? That's number three. We express our hurts and our difficulties to God. 
As one writer put it, but most importantly, God speaks in the Psalms and teaches us how to speak back to God. This is a book that God has given to us to teach us how to work through these emotions. Uh, Moberly, an older scholar, he was quoted in the footnote of the New American Commentary and he says this, and I love this statement. He says this, he says, This shows that the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith. That is, to have this struggle does not mean that your faith is small. Now he takes it even further. He says, nor is it something to be outgrown or put behind. But rather it is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. Some people think, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be spiritual, which means I'm not going to have these problems. They're not going to bother me. I'm not going to ever deal with spiritual depression. You live long enough, you serve Jesus long enough, you're going to go through several more bouts with it. Mm -hmm. And working through it is not a sign that you have a problem. It is a sign that you are concerned with the right things, you want to do the right thing, you want to please God, and you're willing to take them to Him. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite religious writers. Probably, and, and you know, books are kind of in certain ways subjective. And depending upon where you are in life when you read them, what your needs are and how they hit them. Yancey, for me, I call it, he's like my spirit animal. It's like the man knows what I'm thinking. It's like he knows the questions I have and those are the ones that he wrestles with and he writes with such a... with such a a broad perspective. See, he was a journalist, a worldwide journalist. He's traveled the world. He's seen so many different things and writes from such a a profound perspective. In his book, Disappointment with God, which, by the way, the title of that book alone makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But he's talking about Job, and this is one of my favorite statements. He says this, He says, one bold message of the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at Him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. And often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown to be contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. Remember, Jacob would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And I went through an experience in preaching. You can't see the scars on me physically, but I know they're there. And it's like this other song, this contemporary Christian song that I've heard, I'm thankful for the scars because they remind me of who you are. It's the story of a God who bound those wounds. He goes on to say this, He says, in this respect, the Bible prefigures the tenet of modern psychology. You can't really deny your feelings and make them disappear, so you might as well express them. God can deal, and this is where he hits it on the head, God can deal with every human response save one. He cannot abide the response that I fall back on instinctively and attempt to ignore Him or treat Him as if He doesn't exist. Mm That response never occurred to Job. Any response? Any response? 
you know, it's amazing to me. And I don't know whether the church culture I was raised in taught this to me or I absorbed it. I don't know. I've just been, I'm so far removed from it, I don't remember. <clears throat> but I had the notion. How I got it, I don't know. Prayer, it had to be the formula, right? You had to, as Wayne was talking about it, you had to go through and talk about other people. You couldn't really talk about yourself. And you certainly couldn't express your emotions because that's not dignified enough for the God of heaven. And they say, you can't be angry when you talk to God. And the whole time, all I can think is this. You mean he doesn't already know it? <coughs> yes, I should fear the anger of God toward me, but God's not afraid of my anger. Not one bit. And so we learn <clears throat> to take those things to God. And then number four, we cling to God's faithfulness because that's what He says here. The children of your servants dwell secure and your, their offspring will be established before you. Why? Because you don't go anywhere. You don't move. Genesis 15 is one of my favorite texts when God affirms the promise to Abraham. Remember when that smoking pot comes down and goes through the animals in the covenant. God says, in essence, as I understand what He's doing there, God looks at Abraham and says, if I don't take care of you and your descendants, I'm not God. I'm not Him. May I be cut off. That's the point of the covenant. That's the point of dividing the animals. And when we're in these difficult moments, one of the most important things we have to remember is to learn to trust God and His Word over our own feelings. Mm-hmm. We have to learn to trust God and what He has said more than we trust how we feel. Have you ever felt like God wasn't there? So, when I was 20 years old, I had an anxiety attack. I had no idea what it was. It was hereditary. It ran in my family. I didn't know what it was. I was preaching when I had it. I didn't really have another one until about uh, two years ago. And, And the way... A lot of the way the 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 issue that I have is that um, I have a tendency to push myself too far until my body just forces a shutdown, mm-hmm. and so you ang- your anxiety comes to you then in cycles, where you have massive attacks one on top of the other for an extended period of time, and so I was having them, and, and recovery was not what it was the first time I had them. It was taking longer. And I remember sitting there, and every sermon, every class was difficult. I made myself do it, but it was difficult. And I remember just stopping and breaking down with God and saying, Look, where are you? Where are you? And then I remembered Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. Mm -hmm. 
Look, I'm not a Greek scholar. I won't even put that out there. I'm an elementary Greek student. That means I have passed A and B or one and two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but have you ever looked at Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 in its original context? Because it comes across to us in English as I will never leave you or forsake you. You know it's much more powerful than that in the original. The first one has two negative, two negations. We don't like double negatives in English, right? (laughs) They did. It was their way of making their point. So God says, I will never, never leave you. And then the next one, it's a triple negative. I will know not never forsake you. And in that moment, I was staring at the page of my Greek New Testament and all I could think about was when one of my boys comes to me and they're scared to death about something they have to do, when Connor had to go in and get stitches and he's scared and I know he is, I am too. And I take his hands in my face and I tell him, look at me, and his eyes are still darting around the room, look at me, look at me. I'm right here. You're going to be okay. That's what God is saying to us in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He's taking our face, cupping it in His hands and saying, look at me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. when we understand that we gladly cast our anxieties upon 